We're going to continue our series on stewardship today, and it's going to be the final sermon of the series. Um, Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. And the title of the message is Faith to Distribute. Faith to Distribute. Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 through 38. Matthew 15, verses 32 through 38. It says, And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish, verse 35. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied and they all picked up and they picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. 38. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Lord, help us as we study. There are five things I want to talk about from this passage today. One, Jesus mentions the need. Two, he's moved with compassion when he does so. Three, the disciples respond out of their need. Four, Jesus asks for their stuff. And five, he begins to multiply it for a multitude. This passage I'm going to intentionally overlay with who we are as a people. And what God has called us to do. Because I think there is great import from this passage to the calling on this church. I've been privileged to help start this congregation. And to be with it from every day of its existence. From 1982 till now. And I became senior pastor in 1991. During that time we we have found many iterations of who we are supposed to be. But... Probably the most clear has been what, what Jesus revealed to me in the year 2000. At that time, I had been with the congregation for 19 years and had been pastor for roughly nine. And I was in a hotel room. Um, I was at a conference and uh, was doing my devotion. I was lying in bed or sitting in bed doing my devotion. And as as I was doing what I normally do, all of a sudden, Jesus came in the room. Now, this had never happened to me before, and it hasn't happened since. No, he didn't use the door. (laughs) And he was there near the foot of my bed. And uh, whenever I I tell this story to people, they say, the first question they always ask is, what do you look like? never mind but but when he does this kind of thing you know it's him it's undeniable and he, he, he said two things to me that's it just two he said I want you to believe me for the city and I will send you the men men is generic it's not gender related and then he left gone and it just kind of blew me away because I wasn't expecting it 
And there was so much more I wanted to talk to him about regarding those things. And other things I had questions about. Can you just stay and hang for a minute? Because I really have a lot of questions. But I, I didn't get the opportunity. That's all he told me to do. And so from that point on, I have begun to fashion and architect this church, not on the basis of what I thought, but on the basis of what he said. And I had some other people help me with how to interpret that moment to make sure it was God, because the last thing you want is to begin to move the entire congregation in a direction that is not biblically centered. And others have since inputted into the process and helped me understand that that was really the Lord. And so we have done everything we have done toward that goal. Now, many of you all don't know that because when you come here, you're trying to figure out how in the world can I get my life right? How can I get help from my situation? I need deliverance from this. I need to be delivered into something else. I need my life fixing. I need my marriage fixing. I need my career fixing. I need my child fixing. I need my parents fixing. I need my home. There are so many needs that you come to the kingdom for. The kingdom of God, which is probably best represented by the church. And you're looking to try to figure out how you can get your plate full and your needs met. I get it. And we are glad about that. We want to be a place that provides for people that don't have. But that's not, that's not our end goal. Our end goal is to not make you self-actualized. To have you be full. To have you be somebody who understands what your purpose is on the planet and feel good about coming into the church and integrate into the life and culture of the people and to make this the place at which you express your spirituality most. We're glad about your healing. We have pastors on staff that help you get to where you need to be for that specific purpose. But that's not the end. The reason we are fashioning this house is to be an impact on our city to figure out a way how in the world we can do that. Believe God for the city and then see him as a result send us people to make it happen. Now, we have no delusions of grandeur. We don't believe that we're people that can win the city by ourselves. When we say, when we say the city, we're talking about the metropolitan area. 6.8 million people live in the D.C. area. I don't know how many services we would need in order to accommodate all those people, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like a year doing three services every day here, and then you only have those people attend once. That's how long it would take, so it's unreasonable. But we need the rest of the body of Christ to help, and I, I am dependent on a lot of other shepherds out there who have the same vision I have, and there are some. I've met with them, and we are partnering together to see this thing happen, but we have to do our part. And the need seems overwhelming, especially when you look at the resources that a particular congregation has to meet the entirety of the need of Washington, D.C. It seems to be so incongruent that nobody could, should ever even dream that big. Thus, we come to this passage. Jesus, in Matthew 15, has 4,000 people, men, who have followed him out into the wilderness, not to mention women and children. So we're talking about probably eight to 10,000 folks, minimally. And they probably did not know that they were going on a, on a three-day conference. Probably didn't know that. They just thought they were going out with Jesus to hear what he had to say because Jesus had become the new thing. 
John the Baptist had pre predated him and begun to prepare the way for him. Started his ministry about six months before Jesus started his. And John the Baptist, who was a relative of Christ, and we understand probably they were friends, had pronounced that Jesus was the guy everybody ought to be looking for, and he was only the one who paved the way for his success. And so people were coming out to John the Baptist in the wilderness to hear what he had to say, being baptized at the River Jordan, and being transformed by his message. He was, he was outstanding in his service. Then Jesus shows up, and John says, that's the one you need to follow. I need to decrease that he might increase. You think I'm something. I'm not even able I'm not worthy to tie, untie his sandals. That's how great he is. And, and, and that's a reference to the fact that there were some times when people would come into certain people's houses and their feet were really dirty uh, because they had no pavement. It was all dirt upon which they walked. And so they wore sandals, not closed-toe shoes. And, and, and to come into somebody's house, you need to wash your feet. And the lowest servant in the house would be the one at times who would untie the sandals to do that. He said, I am not. You think I'm that? You think I'm all that? I am not even worthy to be that low in his house. I'm someplace beneath that. He is so great. And so when he says that and then proclaims him to be what we would now understand as the Messiah, everybody begins to leave John and go to him. And John's ministry decreases and Christ increases. And we get to the place where Christ is now beginning to multiply his influence in the community. But it's getting so big that there's no one city that can handle all the people that want to hear what he's got to say. And so he's got to travel out into the wilderness and find an, a, a place that's a natural amphitheater that, that multiplies the sound of his voice so other people can hear it. And so he, he looks for spots like that and, and where there are, are a sheer cliff on this side and sheer cliff on this side. And when he speaks, that comes back off there and so people can hear it from much further away because they didn't have a sound system. And so prior to this 4,000 people moment, there was a 5,000 people moment. And we're talking about now in the first full year of Christ's ministry, both events happened, meaning the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And within that year, they happened within probably three to four months. Jesus was taking people out of the wilderness to help them understand as quickly as possible, to get as many people to hear it, as quickly as possible, who he was and how they needed to comply with his ministry in hopes that, that, that there would be this, this, this process by which he could do some culling, meaning find, find folks who really wanted to hear what he had to say and others who were just there along for the ride because they wanted a job. And distinguish between the two, and then not only have the disciples that he gathered, but then an extended group that we know were really instrumental to seeing the church birth, because at the time of the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after his resurrection, there were 120 people that were fully committed to what he was doing. And so it wasn't just the 12, it was 10 times that many he was trying to coalesce in order to have a ministry that would impact you, change the way the world thought about life. So that this message of the gospel could transfer itself all the way down from one generation to another to the year 2019. What a fabulous strategy he had. But this was the beginning of it. How do I figure out how to get it beyond just the 12? And so he would get all these people together and he'd find one here, one there, one there, two there, three there. And the, but, but the benefit would be the entire nation would get to know who he was and benefit from his ministry. And through his, his recognition, he would begin to do miracles that would confirm his messianic role in the earth. 
He'd begin to say things that the prophet said the, mess, the Messiah ought to say. Things would be confirmed through these wonderful moments he had with the multitudes. Now, this 4,000 moment, as I said, came after, was subsequent to the 5,000 moment. Now, the 5,000 people moment was also one that just, just numbered the men. So we're talking about somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people at the 5,000 people moment where you had five loaves and two fish. Here you've got seven loaves and a few small fish. It doesn't say how many fish. But it happened just a few months earlier, and it went something like this. The disciples recognized that, that, they, they had, that the crowd had been with Jesus longer than the crowd anticipated they would need to be with Jesus. So long that the folks realized, the disciples, you know, they have it. It's Sunday, Chick-fil-A's closed. They haven't eaten anything. They didn't prepare by bringing lunch with him. We did because we know you. You don't wear a watch. And like you could just talk forever on stuff. And so we knew we, 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 better, bring, we better come pack it because I don't know exactly how long this is going to take. They don't know that. And so they begin to come to you wanting to hear what you've got to say. And now they're out here longer than their bellies can manage. And so the disciples chime in and say, please send these people away. This is, John, this is Matthew chapter 14. This is the feeding of the 5,000, not the one we just read. Send these people away because they're hungry. And they got, there's no food in this desolate spot. And Jesus looks at the disciples and said, you feed them. <laughs> now, Jesus does this kind of stuff only because there is cause. He realizes whatever they've got is not enough. He knows that. If they were to compile all of the resources they have, it would barely be enough for them. So why in the world is he asking them to do something that whatever they've got can't accomplish? There's no way the goal can be met. Primarily because Jesus realizes there's selfishness down at the bottom of what you're trying to do here. You're the one who has said, send these people away. I brought them out here for a ministry moment. Why in the world would I want to cut your church? These folk have come out here to hear something supernaturally great. I'm only going to be with them for a minute, and you want to send them away? Why? Because you know it's not polite to eat in front of folk. <laughs> Meaning you don't want to share. You're set. You got yours. And you'd like to go ahead and imbibe. But it's not polite to sit here and chow down when everybody else is looking, oh, they got food. So send them away so we can do what we want to do. Jesus, recognizing their selfishness, says, feed them. Oh, where? Why are we going to get enough food to feed all these people? We only got five loads of two fish. No, you got to be here. No, I mean, I know you know what you're doing, but really, really. In the face of overwhelming need out there, Somehow or another, Jesus is believing that our little bit can be enough to meet if we have faith. If we have faith. And he's not looking for your resources to be the complete supply. He's just trying to figure out, are you willing to be my partner in this? He realizes your five loaves and two fish won't cut it. He knows your little bit ain't enough. But he realizes this. You give it to me, I can make it enough. Do you have the faith to distribute It says after that first, the 5,000, that 
that Jesus gave it to the disciples, the disciples then gave it to the people, and somehow or another, whenever Jesus thanked, thanked God for the food and then broke it, that which he broke seemed to reappear as whole. And he just kept breaking it. The disciples were thinking, I don't know how this is happening, but every time I go back, there's more on my plate than I gave them in, in the beginning. It's amazing. All day long, they were feeding these folk. And each of them, after they finished eating, each of the disciples picked up one full basket full of stuff that was left over. Now, I don't know how big the basket, but, it, you know, something like that, you got an over-your-shoulder kind of thing. Wow! When Jesus asks you for your stuff, he's not trying to make you poorer. He's trying to make you a partner. The disciples didn't know it, but their little bit was about to turn into more than enough. And each of them could go back to whoever their significant other was and say, baby, you ain't got to go to Safeway for like a week. We got enough. I, where'd that come from? I really don't know. It doesn't make any sense what I'm about to tell you, but that's what happened. We gave him five loaves and two fish, and we came back with this. Wow. Now, unusual miracle, and that's, a, that's an oxymoronic statement because every miracle is unusual. But this was so, it should be, so indelibly imprinted on their soul that the next time they come to something that looks like it, deja vu ought not be difficult. So they get to the, this moment where now these people who have been with Jesus in Matthew 15 have been out with him now for three days. And maybe some of them packed enough in order to, like, think, okay, this is going to be like the, the one before, maybe a day and a half. But this was a three-day conference, and he didn't tell them how long they'd be out there in advance. And so this time the disciples say nothing. The first time they say something. This time they say nothing. And Jesus then says to them, you know, these people have been out, out with me now about three days and they don't have any food. So I'm thinking we ought to feed them something lest they faint on the way. Just makes the statement. And I'm convinced that there was a long pause. Because the disciples, some of them were thinking, I ain't saying nothing. Last time we got rebuked. I mean, it was a good moment. We brought home some food we didn't have, but like, I felt really stupid, so I'm, I'm just going to let this go. And then finally, somebody says, we only have seven loaves and a few small fish. That's all we got. I know where you're going with this. I know where you're going, but we only got a little. Listen to me. The first miracle was supposed to be fuel for the second. Your memory ought to kick in when God has already done something great for you. And you do not need to let the present circumstances and your fear of lack begin to define the moment. Because he just did something yesterday. But everything about the moment, if you focus on it and what you have to meet the need, seems to allow your memory of what God did sprout wings and fly away. Amnesia sets in. Why don't you, why don't you get it? I mean, Jesus was sitting there at what I believe was a moment of silence. 
when the disciples wouldn't chime up with any good faithful reason as to how they needed to process this moment. And I'm sitting there thinking, Jesus, I say, you know, I knew y'all was slow. But I didn't know you were this slow. I, it's just amazing to me. We just did this three months ago. Why in the world would you define the moment again by what you have? Why? Your memory needs to kick in. If only that it reflects back on what Jesus did for you in salvation. That he took insurmountable odds. Things that you couldn't fix on your own if you tried. The deck was stacked against you and you should be terminated and on your way to hell. And he took all your whooping for you. And did the greatest miracle we can ever experience. And gave us a born again moment. A fresh start. A new beginning in his kingdom, and not only made us servants, but sons of the Father, whereby we are now inheritors. If, if that's the only moment of miracle you've got, it ought to be enough to fuel everything else that's impossible down the road. Because that was impossible on your part. There was no way you could fix it, and he did it all by himself. He's a big God who loves you. And when he's asking for your stuff, he's not trying to make you poorer. He's trying to make you a partner. Seven loaves and three fish. Give them to me. And in the process of partnering with God, it's really important that we allow compassion to kick in. Otherwise, it becomes kind of obligatory, dutiful. And that's better than, than not ignoring the moment. Letting the need just pass by because you feel no burden at all to, to address it. So being dutiful and responsible is good. But there's something about compassion. It says Jesus felt compassion for the folks he had to minister to. There's something about compassion that really fuels your want to. Not just I have to. I love these folk. My heart is bleeding for their benefit. What can I have? What do I have here? Let me give. Let me supply. Compassion makes duty enjoyable. Makes it more than tolerable. Compassion kind of allows you to no longer think about the little you have. But it says, I'm thinking about the thing they don't have. I might have a little, but they got nothing. Compassion fuels the, the most proper worshipful response to somebody else's lack. And the problem with the disciples is that at the moment when they should have known it was important for them to say yes to God before he asked them, they were still looking at their own need rather than the, the crowd's need. Their need to find the moment when Jesus was saying, there's a need out there that you all aren't even acknowledging. You haven't come to me thinking, Lord, could you do the miracle again? And remember, the miracle that was done with the 5,000 benefited the disciples they got more food back so you know it's one of those why wouldn't they say hey y'all who are crowd stay here for a minute please <laughs> hang out here as long as you like because I'm about to get fat <laughs> we, I'm about to fill my cupboards if y'all hang out here long enough because I know what Jesus does I know what he does and I got a little bit of stuff here I'm going to give it to him he's going to break it I'm going to go out and distribute it and now I'm going to wind up with more please stay please stay None of that came from them. Compassion fuels faith. It fuels
fuels action. It allows you the privilege of going beyond just what you got to do. And Jesus says, give me your stuff. Almost, you can't tell voice inflection from Scripture except when there's there's an exclamation point behind the passage. But I just get the sense that Jesus said, give me it. It's one of those resignation moments. Y'all still don't get it. You still don't get it. And they're sitting there thinking, okay, we we had our lunch prepared, but now we got to give it away. And then he breaks it. And the thing he broke remained whole. And they, they continue to distribute, and he comes back with more, and they continue to distribute. It's a moment. It is a moment that is supposed to be built on the fact that when he leaves, they're the ones who are going to have to have the faith to do the breaking, to do the distribution. They're going to have to have a, a, a big heart that has compassion for people that goes beyond their own limited resources and believes God to do things that have never been done before. They have to replicate his ministry while he's gone. They have to do it. And he's giving them an opportunity to see, you can participate in this because I'm leaving in about three and you've got to carry this thing on. Come partner with me now. Use your little as a distribution activity. Make it something that is, give it away and watch how God will do things with your little to supply for the many and make you not lack. But reluctance was still their attitude and then after Jesus breaks it they distribute and they have seven baskets full left over seven I'm not quite sure theologically what the distinction is between the twelve they had with the five thousand and the seven they had with the four thousand I have a lot of ideas in my brain but none of them really matter much because I don't know that they're accurate all I know is that God's standard operating procedure is to take your little and abide and, and uh, uh, abide and profoundly give you an abundance in the end to allow your faith to grow and say, this is, this is what God does. He always provides for me in the end. And the need to reach this city is much more than this little church has. Much more. But we are willing to break that which we have, give it to God, and say, do something with it, please, God. Multiplied for the needs of these 6.8 million people. Again, we don't think we are the only congregation that has this vision, nor can we do it by ourselves. I was meeting with a pastor named Mark Batterson. He's a really good writer in the body of Christ, and he's downtown. He's doing a fabulous job. We had lunch together a couple of, a couple of months ago. And he began to ask me, so what's your vision? Because he came to our building. He's about to put up a building. He came to our building back in November to figure out how he could do what we were doing with our chairs because somebody told him our chairs are real nice. So he was out here looking at our chairs. I was on the road. My administrative team calls me and says, Mark Batterson's in the building. I said, what? Why? He said, I don't know. I think he's looking at our chairs, which doesn't make much sense, but he likes our chairs. So I said, put the man on the phone. 
I said, bro, you come to my building. You don't even let me know. Why you just show up? I said, I'm happy you're there, but you got to give me some notice. I would have canceled my trip. What you doing? He said, well, I came to look at your chairs. You came to look at my chairs. That's really interesting. No, he said, we're trying to put our chairs, those kind of chairs, in our new building. I said, oh. And so the people told you, rather than just looking at the magazine, to come and see the chairs that they had installed in our place so you could. Yes, that's it. I said, great. Now that you're on the phone with me, when are we getting lunch? <laughs> so we got lunch. And it was supposed to be an hour. It wound up being three. We were praying together. And everything I said, he said, you're, you're my brother from another mother. He said, I, I got the same thing. All I want to do is win this city. I said, oh, thank you, Jesus. Somebody who thinks bigger than themselves. And I'm happy with any, any pastor that's got a vision for their church to be what they should be. I, I'm doing this. Because God called me to. This is what he called us to. And so he's putting up a building. And we, we sowed resources downtown. I just said, listen, I'll come back to church. I said, let's stroke this boy a check. Give him some money for his building. We're trying to, to take our little bit and see if God will multiply it. When we give to Western Fairfax Christian Ministries, which is an organization here that is a clearinghouse for us, and you say, well, why don't you just do it as a local church? Why do you need another ministry? Well, the Western Fairfax is the arm of benevolence that allows for the body of Christ to have some integrity when they are dispensing resources to those who in need. There are times when uh, somebody might come and say to a local congregation, um, I, need, I need my rent, I'm about to be evicted. And that congregation says, great, we're glad to help you. And once they get the check, they go to another congregation and present the same need. And to another congregation with the same need, and none of the pastors know. And so we're thinking, okay, they got the need, man, and they, 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 but that's probably not the best way to make this. So, we, so Western Fairfax Christian Ministry was created as an organization to which all the churches contribute, and they can be the clearinghouse. So we're trying to well administrate the resources of the local church, and they preach the gospel to these folks. So they're in line with what we do, and we send people there, and then they send them back to us to go to church. It's a great thing. But my point is this. We're trying to figure out how we can best utilize our resources to help meet the needs of people out there. And I'm begging you, do not look at the minuscule stuff you've got as, be the, as being the only way that God could, could possibly reach the, the metropolitan area or your sphere of influence or your school or your business by looking at only what you've got. Because when you give it to him, he can make so much more of what you've got. And learn from Moses who sat there for a whole chapter and argued with God. Lord, I don't want to go. God said, I heard my people. They're crying out to me. I'm sending them a deliverer and you're it. Lord, you know I can't speak. Well, yeah, I knew that before I said go. <laughs> well, Lord, what if they don't believe me? Well, put your hand in here. It came out leprous. Put it back. It came out clean. Throw your staff down. Stick became a snake. Pick it up. Became a staff again. They'll believe you then. Well, Lord, you know, I, I, who shall I say sending me? Now, that's kind of offensive. When a bush is talking to you <laughs> and it's not burning, <laughs> Do you need a first name? Do you really need a first name? 
The Lord reveals something to him that he hadn't revealed to anybody else. I am that I am. All of that was not to find out who God was. That was to say, I'm trying to get out of this. And you haven't revealed your identity to anybody, and I don't know why you would do it to me. So that would be a deal breaker if I cannot confirm who's sending me. And God showed him. The whole chapter was an argument based on what Moses only had. I don't have enough of anything to make this happen. I don't have enough energy. I got a good retirement plan with my father-in-law here. I'm going to be here with these sheep. For, I've been here for 40 years, and we're about to, you know, get a condo down in Tampa. And I'm really excited about where we're going with this. But you're about to upset my entire life. This is not what I thought about when I thought about retirement. God, really? I don't want to do it. Finally, he says, send somebody else. And it says, the anger of the Lord burned it, Moses. That's not a sentiment you want to feel from God. All on the basis of what he thought he did not have to meet the need. Your little bit is what he desires in order to let you be a partner in his progress. And it's not that he needs your little bit to make it happen. It's that he wants it in order to bring you up to a new level of what it means to work with him. God can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it, however he wants to do it. It's not that he needs your money. It's not that he has no need. This is what makes him distinct as being God. Anytime he dispenses resources from himself, he doesn't lose anything he just gave. He is the infinite one. So it's not like he's, he's saying, hey, can, can you lend me a dollar? It's not that. He's trying to let you partner with him. He could have gone ahead and produced bread from nothing for all these folk. As evidenced by the fact, you know, John chapter 9 with that guy who uh, uh, was in the area where Jesus was ministering and it said he was blind from birth. And Jesus does a different kind of miracle with this guy than he's done with anybody else. With blind Bartimaeus, as he's coming into Jerusalem for the last time, blind Bartimaeus, he says, I want to see. Jesus lays his hands on his eyes, and he sees. And, and, And that's the normal way that miracles were done with respect to sight for Christ. But this one was different. It said that he actually spit on the ground, took some dirt from, from the ground with the spittle and made mud, and then placed mud on the guy's eyes. Well, it says that the man was born blind. That probably means something happened genetically because of the way Jesus did this miracle, whereby he was probably born with no eyes. And that Christ knew we all came from dirt because that's where Adam came from. And he literally made eyeballs. My point is he can do it any way he wants any way he wants and we ought to be privileged to be the ones he has asked to participate with him please when the need is great and your resources seem so small don't look at the little bit you don't have begin to see that as a seed the finances as a seed your time as a seed your strength as a seed, all that you have, your talents as a seed that can be sown in the ground and reap for you much more than you ever gave and at the same time benefit a world that has no clue. 
You know how hard it is to get your situation fixed, and you are crying out to God with prayer and fasting and reading your Bible and coming to church and going to small group, and everything within you is pressing forward just to make baby steps. What is happening to the people that have no God and no hope? How are they getting up every day with any reason to get up? We are supposed to be the ones that give them hope beyond just the temporal reality in which they live. That there's a God who loves them and there's a God who cares for them and he showed it by sending his son and if they give their lives to him, not only will their eternity be fixed, but he can address their temporalness. But it's going to take somebody, somebody who's willing to give the little bit that they got that seems like nothing and let God multiply it and then watch how it returns back to them with basketfuls. Let's pray.